Listener Production. Are you tired of not getting what you want in life? I used to feel the same until I learnt the techniques of manifestation. Let me take you through step by step how I manifest so you can start living the life you had always dreamt for yourself. All the info on my Manifest Your Greatness course is in this episode show notes or you can go to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com to purchase Manifest Your Greatness. Dr. Richard Schwartz began his career as a systematic family therapist and an academic where he discovered that family therapy alone did not achieve full symptom relief. Grounded in systems thinking, Dr. Schwartz developed internal family systems, better known as IFS, which has been transforming psychology for decades. IFS is a transformative model of psychotherapy that seeks to integrate fractured parts of our identity that are developed from wounds or trauma occurring early on in life. In the conversation that follows, we discuss the radical benefits of having IFS therapy and the many thousands of people, including celebrities, it has transformed. We also discuss how to use IFS in relationships and the transformative powers of both psychedelic and meditation in relation to this work. The big deal about IFS is that it turns out that that self with all those great qualities isn't everybody, can't be damaged, and is just beneath the surface of these parts so that when they open space, it pops out spontaneously and it knows how to heal automatically. Meditation, like I said, is a way to help those parts relax so you access more of that self, and that's what a lot of meditations are about. Even mindfulness, just noticing your thoughts and emotions, you're separating from your parts. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Dr. Richard Schwartz is the author of many best-selling books, including No Bad Parts, Family Systems Therapy, and his newest book, You Are the Only One You've Been Waiting For. In its essence, this episode provides actionable tools and techniques to heal past wounds, enhance relationships, and foster resilience, enabling individuals to lead more fulfilling and authentic lives. My hope is that this conversation will serve as a guiding light leading you towards the profound empowerment and limitless potential that awaits on the path to inner harmony and wholeness. Richard Schwartz, I want to know what got you into therapy? How did it all begin? So I was born into a family. Uh, My father was a prominent physician researcher, ran a hospital, and I'm the oldest of six boys, and I was supposed to be Three of them are the same. They're prominent doctor researchers. I was supposed to be, but my ADD saved me from that fate. I wasn't a good student, and it frustrated the hell of my father. So he was pretty hard on me, and so I walked out of my family with a lot of worthlessness, Mm. a sense of not being competent at all. 
but he got me a job when I was in college in the summers on the psych unit. It was an adolescent unit and I, I would get close to these kids and then I would see their families come to visit them and would tear into them. They were really scapegoated by these families. And then in their, this was a very psychoanalytic department. And in their sessions, they would hardly talk about the families. Sometimes they wouldn't talk at all. And the therapist would just sit there. And I thought there's gotta be a better way to do this. And so I uh, graduated college and just kind of roamed around in those hippie days and uh, then decided after pounding spikes on the railroad enough that I didn't want to do manual labor all my life. I decided to go to grad school and, and become a family therapist. And uh, in about 1980, graduated with a PhD wow. in family therapy. It's so interesting, you know, because I'm assuming that you wouldn't have realized that you had ADD when you were young back then. So at that time, you probably just didn't understand why maybe it took you longer to grasp concepts or your attention span wasn't the same as other people. And so it's hard. I feel like a lot of parents in that era, my era as well, my dad was quite hard on me as well. I remember one day I came home from school and I was terrible at maths. And he's like, what do you mean you don't know your times tables or whatever it was? And your parents only want the best for you, but at the same time, when they are really hard on you about a certain subject or something that you find quite difficult to do, it can be a really traumatic experience. Yeah, I mean, exactly that. I didn't know why I couldn't learn the way other people could. And my memory was terrible. And uh, so I just thought, I'm an idiot, which is what my father kept telling me. <laughs> so getting away from him and getting away from my family really helped because I think some of my ADD was related to to the performance pressure I felt and, you know, not wanting to disappoint and worrying about that. With ADD, is it something that happens due to the environment and our learning and that kind of stuff, like you're saying, or is it, are you born with ADD? I think you're born with a tendency, but your environment can make it better or worse. Really? Yeah, I think that's very true. So I just had a real low self-esteem for quite a while. And then I found that the psychology of the family therapy field was really exciting to me. And I could kind of concentrate when I needed to. And so I did really well. And it was the first time I felt like, you know, maybe there is something I can do. You got into that field and were in it for a while and you founded Internal Family Systems, which is known by its acronyms IFS. How did that come about? You know, I was a very zealous family therapist and we all felt like we'd found the Holy Grail and the people who were mucking around in the inner world were wasting their time because we could fix all that by changing these family relationships and decided to prove that and did an outcome study. It started about 1981 with a population of bulimic kids and found that I could reorganize the families just the way the book said to and still... My kids didn't realize they'd been cured because they kept binging and pur purging. And out of frustration, I began asking them, why? What are you, why are you doing this? And they started talking the strange language of parts. 
And at first I was nervous because it sounded like maybe they were sicker than I thought because they were talking about this critic who would attack them inside and then this other part that would make them feel worthless and then that would trigger a part that would make them binge on food. And it sounded like they had no control over these things and they, these parts had relationships with each other. And yeah, it sounded like multiple personality disorder almost. Mm. And then I listened inside myself and, oh my God, I've got them too. And some of mine are equally extreme. And so I calmed down and then began exploring, you know, trying to do what I was doing in external families with these internal parts, having them talk to each other and trying to help them get to know each other and get along better uh, with my clients who I, I was lucky. I had a couple clients in the beginning who were really articulate about this whole phenomenon. And so just in doing trial and error with them, they taught me a huge amount. And one of the things I learned, not real quickly, but fairly quickly, was that these parts weren't what they seemed. If I could get my clients to actually listen to them, they would relax and they would share a lot about how they got forced into the roles they were in. And that was really contrary to the way most of the field still sees these things and was shocking to me. But as I would try it with other clients, even the ones that were ruining the client's life would confess to how they were trying to protect the client. And so I, I began trying to get clients to, to listen to the parts rather than fight with them or ignore them. And so I've been doing that for 40 years now. So when you say parts, is it like the inner voice that we all have within each other that a lot of us will ignore or not even realise it's there? Is it the subconscious mind? How do you define the parts? A part is a, what other systems would call a subpersonality. So it's a little inner personality that was designed to be helpful. My belief is we're all born with them and they're either a manifest or they're dormant and then they kind of come online as you as you develop, but that uh, we all have them. That's the nature of the, the brain, the nature of the mind to be multiple in that sense. And people who have multiple personality disorder aren't any different from everybody else, except that theirs got blown apart a lot more. So the, there's these amnesic barriers among them, but what they call alters are really just what I call parts. They're full range inner personalities they have different purposes, different parts are good at different things and they're here in, in our lives to help us. And what we call thinking is often the conversation among them. Like if you're looking to do something or talk to somebody important, you'll have one part to say, say this, another, no, don't say that. You'll have this big debate in your head. And it's like a bunch of little kids in there trying to figure out what, what to do next. And so, like I said, these clients back in the early 80s just were really articulate about, yeah, I've got this critic who calls me names all day. And then really? this other part that binges and they're fighting with each other all the time and so on. It's so interesting you say that because it reminds me of, you know, many years ago before I became very conscious of my thoughts and my actions and got into meditation and all that sort of stuff. So I was completely unconscious when this was happening. I could be sitting in the car with someone mulling over something in my head, so ruminating over, I don't know, 
a situation that probably hadn't even occurred yet. And it could be like half an hour where I wouldn't even have realised that I was silent because, you know, from what you're saying now, it was probably the parts in my mind having a conversation, which was negative, and making me worried. And in my head, it was like I was talking but I wasn't talking. So the poor person that was with me probably was thinking, why she gone so quiet? When in my head, it was like very dynamic in a negative way, if you know what I mean. So it's so interesting that you say that. But as soon as I became conscious and very much started getting into very deep meditation and a lot of personal development work, that doesn't really happen anymore. So what I also discovered as I was doing this inner dialogue kind of work was that there's somebody else inside of us that if the parts relax, which is what you do with your meditation, will come forward spontaneously. You know, when I learned that these parts needed to be listened to rather than fought with, I would have you maybe focus on one and try to listen to it, ask it what it wanted you to know, and then wait for an answer to come back. Don't think of the answer. And you'd be amazed. I mean, if we did that now, you would get answers that really surprised you a lot of the time. And as you did that, I would try to help you listen more and and even extend some compassion to the part for trying to help, even if it was screwing up your life. And the parts really respond well to that. But as I was doing that with some clients, suddenly they might get furious with the part out of the blue instead of listen to it. And it reminded me of family sessions where I'm trying to have two family members talk to each other. And a third one jumps in and is really angry at one of them. And we learned as family therapists to get that third person to step back in the room. So the conversation between the two would would go on without interference. I thought maybe the same thing's happening in this inner system. Maybe as I'm trying to have my client talk to this part, part who hates it has come in and is doing the talking. So I would ask clients, could you find that one and ask it to just relax back a little bit inside? And they would say, okay, it did. And I'd say, now, how do you feel toward it? And spontaneously, they would say some version of, I feel sorry for it, or I, I care about it, or I want to help it, or I'm curious about why it's doing this job from a very different place. And it was almost like a different person had popped out who had those kinds of qualities of curiosity and calm and compassion and clarity and so on. There are eight C words that I use to describe this state. And when I would do that same process of getting parts to open space in other clients, it was like the same person would pop out with those same qualities and sort of knew how to relate to these parts in a healing way. And when I would ask clients, what part of you is that? They'd say, that's not a part like these others. That's more me or that's myself. And so I came to call that the self with a capital S. And the big deal about IFS is that it turns out that that self with all those great qualities isn't everybody, can't be damaged, and is just beneath the surface of these parts. So that when they open space, it pops out spontaneously and it knows how to heal automatically. So... Meditation, like I said, is a way to help those parts relax. So you access more of that self. And that's uh, a lot what a lot of meditations are about. Even mindfulness, just noticing your thoughts and emotions, you're separating from your parts 
And then you're accessing some of those C words. When I go into very deep meditations, I could be annoyed at myself for something or slightly ruminating over something again. And then I go into some of these meditations and they can be hours long. But you come to such a place of inner peace. There are moments where I just, it's very overwhelming in the feeling of love that you get when you're in this state, this divinity that sometimes is hard to find day to day. But when you're in the stillness of meditation, you really feel the true inner love for yourself. Yeah, so over time, I started out, because I told you my father was a big scientist, so yeah. I started out a, a scientific atheist. But over time, and, and running into self in all these clients, and then doing it myself and meditating myself, and I became more and more spiritual in, in my understanding of what this is. And so along the lines of what you're saying, self isn't just a you know an aspect of a person but for me it's it is where the big self whatever you want to call that people call it god or or the non-dual or whatever it is that is in us that there's a it's like quantum physics talks about a particle in a wave mm. there's the wave state of self and then we all particleize and that's in us but it's much more than just us as a separate being, one of the C words is connectedness. So it, we're connected to that big self when we access this, what I'm calling self of the capital S. And so, yeah, it's become a very spiritual kind of model. And I wonder for you, knowing that a lot of the parts, the ones that may seem more aggressive or negative to start off with, how are they constructed within us? I'm assuming a lot of it comes from our childhood and maybe negative encounters and you spoke about your dad. For a lot of people who are listening who might have young kids and obviously want to give them the best start in life that they can, what advice do you have to allow them to be able to guide their children so they're able to flourish? We're born with these parts and they're all valuable. They're, if, if you had a trauma-free life and you had great parenting, they would stay in their naturally valuable states of your whole life and and you would feel like a very integrated person. You would feel like you had access to all these resources. But trauma and bad parenting or attachment injuries force them out of their naturally valuable states and then they can become quite extreme and they'll take on the uh, extreme beliefs and emotions that came into you from the trauma. And they also get frozen in time. So if I were to have you ask some, like the critic inside, how old it thought you were, usually you get a single digit. They still think you're the age when you got hurt as a child. And they think that the world is still as dangerous as it was. Mm. They're forced out of their naturally valuable states into these roles and some, which other systems would call inner children, are the more vulnerable parts and get hurt the most. And so before they were hurt, you love them because they give you all kinds of playfulness and creativity and love of life and openness and sincerity. But after they get hurt or they get terrified or shamed and they carry now worthlessness, you don't want to be around them, so you wind up locking them away 
in inner basements and trying your best to not feel any of that, thinking you're just moving on from the, the trauma, the emotions of the trauma, not realizing that you're you're locking, exiling is my language, the parts of you that are actually your most precious just because they got hurt. And once you have a bunch of exiles, you feel more vulnerable. The world seems more dangerous. So many things could trigger them. If they get triggered, it's a big explosion of emotion. And also we all grew up in families that didn't like certain emotions. And so you wound up exiling for those reasons too. So other parts are forced to become protectors, some of whom try to manage your life so that you don't get triggered, so that you don't let anybody close enough to hurt you again, or so you look perfect so don't get rejected, or so you, you achieve at a very high level to counter the worthlessness, or you take care of everybody so that they depend on you and you don't take care of yourself though. So these are just some common what we call manager roles that parts get into. And it doesn't always work. And there are times when the world triggers some kind of shame or worthlessness or terror. And so there's this big explosion of fire from the exiles. And another set of parts immediately goes into action to deal with that emergency and tries to distract you from that or get you higher than the flames of emotion until it all calms down again and you can lock it up again. So most of us have a bunch of exiles, a bunch of managers, a bunch of what I call firefighters. They can blend with the self so that we don't have access to what, what I was talking about earlier, to those C-word qualities. In family therapy, we used to call them parentified children because they're young. Even the protectors who run your life are at most teenaged and they're all frozen in time. Most of us, our lives are dominated by these parts and the different, different symptoms we have aren't diseases or psychological problems. They're really just caused by the extremes of these parts. You've obviously done a lot of work with your patients over the years with internal family systems. What are the changes that they have after they've done this work for a while? Uh, well, most people come in with some kind of symptoms. So maybe if you came to me with a lot of anxiety, I would, I would ask, okay, when you feel anxious, when you have a panic attack, what do you try and do? And most people will either try to get away from the fear or attack themselves for being so weak to have this fear of this silly thing. Or So I would have you... Instead, focus on the fear, find it in your body and see if you could get at least curious about why it's so scared. So we would have to get the parts that typically relate to you, to your fear in that way, to give us the space to have you open your mind to it. And then I would have you focus on it, find it in your body and ask what it wants you to know about itself. And you would learn off, you know, often what happened in the past where it stuck that gave it all this fear that it carries still from that time, what we call a burden of fear. And as you learn that, you would start to open your heart to it and you'd have compassion for it. And you could extend that compassion to it 
And it would relate really well to that. And you would start a new relationship with that part of you. And then if we took it steps further, I would have you ask it to show you what happened in the past where it got so scared. And when it felt fully witnessed by you, like you finally get what happened and how bad it was, then I would say, now I want you to go into that scene and be with that little girl, probably in your case, be with her in the way she needed somebody back there. And then at some point, you might do something different for her back there. And then we would get her out of there. And once she was with you in the present here, she'd likely be willing to unload all that fear. And she would transform into a playful little girl. And from that point on, you wouldn't have the same level of fear. Hmm. So... This is a model of transformation. It's not a model of separate from these things and notice them and be accepting of them. That's a good first step, but this involves you yourself becoming a healing kind of presence to these parts. It's not just a, a therapy, it becomes a kind of life practice. Like every day I'm, and it's, as my meditation when I'm in the morning, I'll just check in with all my parts and see how they're doing and if they need anything from me and at some point, I'll ask them to open a lot of space and I'll have the same kind of meditation you have. And then I'll come back to them and thank them for that. And what do you need today? Remember, we're, we're doing this interview with Sarah. So how can I help you get ready for that? And yeah, it's like that. I want to talk about relationships because you've got your new book. You are the one you've been waiting for. And relationships are a big area that you touch on in this book. And I want to know how does... IFS support relationships to be happy and not to be trauma bonded by them? Yeah. So as I said, most of us come out of our families with these exiled parts that are young and feeling at least some worthlessness and some fear. They're looking for a redeemer. They're looking for some person outside of you to come in and let you know that you're valuable and that you're protected in a sense, or you're backed up anyway. And so we go scanning for that person and find somebody who often resembles the person who made us feel bad in the first place, because that parent often is the one we've been desperate to get the approval of and never did. So we find somebody who maybe resembles our father or mother or something, and we have this big charge of uh, love and because finally we're going to get what we didn't get from this, this person. And the person often does resemble one of the parents and will hurt us in the same way. And then once that happens, it's very disillusioning because... This was to be, this person was supposed to be your redeemer and they turn out to be just like the person who hurt you. And so people go into one or four or five projects at that point, their protectors come in and either try to get the person to change back into who they're supposed to be or try to change you so that you are more acceptable to the person again. Or when that doesn't work, 
start to think, okay, this isn't the right redeemer. There's that person's still out there and start looking around again. Or if you get hurt enough, you just wind up giving up on, on a person and you'll throw everything into work or something like that. So couples come in and one partner is in one of those projects and the other is in another project and there's no self to be found. All their conversations are coming from these protective parts that uh, have blended and, and really have very negative views of the other or of themselves. And so a lot of the work then becomes helping each partner do what we call a U-turn in their focus. Instead of focusing on getting the partner to change or focusing on getting them to change directly, you start to listen inside and notice the parts that are dominating and either begin to do this work with, with uh, one partner while the other watches, or there's a process by which I can help them get all their parts to open space and speak to each other from self rather than from these protective parts. And as soon as that shift happens, it's a totally different conversation where all those C word qualities are present and I can kind of get out of the way. I, I just need to hold them in that state while they do that. And they start to work things out. You have done a lot of research into psychedelics. How has that been helpful and how do people use that with IFS? Yeah, mainly I've worked with ketamine, which is the one legal one in the U.S. And um, yeah, so I was approached to to co-lead a retreat with ketamine and IFS and was kind of skeptical because we do pretty well without any psychedelics. But I thought I'd give it a try and see what happened. And I was amazed that uh, for some reason, when people take the ketamine, their managers kind of go to sleep, these protective parts, and it releases a huge amount of self. And that's a big invitation for all these parts that ordinarily are blocked away by the managers to come in. And so people would have in 15 minutes sessions that, you know, I might've been trying to get them to for five sessions already. And they would also have very spiritual experiences as well because of what we were talking about earlier, that mm -hmm. that amount of self, it's like a portal was opened and they could connect to the bigger self and they would get a lot of downloads of spiritual wisdom. And yeah, so it was, it was really wild. And so subsequently I've done, I think three others of these retreats and uh, plan to do a couple more in the fall. And uh, yeah, I'm all excited about it. With the use of drugs, is it all kind of clinically done, not just people randomly taking it? Yeah, I mean, we have a psychiatrist prescriber there. It's all supervised. Yeah, they do interviews to figure out the dosage. And yeah, yeah so it's, it's all done legally. Wow. I'd love to know that IFS has become massive, especially in the last few years, but it's been around for a long time. And I, I know that you've had your own personal struggles that have come out of that. 
And I'd like to talk a bit about it, just the amount of media you've had to do and all the other things that when something explodes, your time is obviously needed more. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm basically a shy person. So it's strange for me to go, even now on the street, I'm being recognized and approached. And But I'll go to, like I was at a guy named Bessel van der Kolk's trauma conference last weekend and... I can't walk two feet without being approached by somebody question. And, you know, it's challenging. It's when, like, when the gods want to punish you, they answer your prayers. So uh, that's the way it feels sometimes. And when I started out and I learned about self in particular, I had this vision of, wow, this could change everything. This is a big deal. And I hope the person who can take it where it's supposed to go comes along because I'm just a little kid. And that little kid is still in there (laughs) and still waiting for that person. And, you know, at least for now, it seems to be me still. But, yeah, it's it's challenging this. um, You know, I stay in the house a lot unless I have to go to a conference or something like that. Is your dad still alive? No, he died. uh, so maybe 10 years ago. I was going to ask if he was able to see your success. Yeah, actually, it was very gratifying because he he got into it and uh, he actually, he retired and he was such a big shot and he got very depressed like people do when they're mm-hmm. big shots and they retire. And uh, he asked me to help him and, you know, with a lot of qualms, but I, I knew he'd never see a therapist. So I did a bunch of sessions with him. And the first one, we went to this critic, which said a lot of mean things about him that were very similar to the mean things that it said to me. It was really interesting to work with the person who made you feel so bad on the part of him that made him feel so bad like that. And then we got to an exile and was this little guy in a cave. And it was all very moving for me. And after every session, he'd come out and say some version of, you know, that was an interesting fantasy, Dick. He he had to kind of put it down. But he kept asking for more. And that actually made me a lot closer to him and made me see him differently, actually. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you were able to kind of heal that relationship between the two of you. Yes. Yeah, at the end, he really valued what I had done and uh, could let me know that. So... It felt great. What is the best advice that you have ever been given? Well, he gave me some good advice. Again, being a scientist, he said, follow the data, even if it takes you way outside your paradigm. And as I entered this world of parts, they were taking me way outside my paradigm because I had a pretty traditional training as a therapist. And you know, you're trained that these parts aren't good, that they that you need to help your clients not listen to them and or fight with them and argue with them. But as I stayed curious, I was learning that they're not what I'd been taught and what most of the world still thinks about them. And I stuck with it in part because, and, you know, I would come to my father and report some of that. And he'd say, well, if this is the data, you got to stay with it. So his support in that area, because he's such a good scientist, 
was uh, very useful and, and so, as was that advice. Richard, what do you wish for yourself? <laughs> I feel very blessed to be bringing this. You know, I, in more mystical moments, I feel like I'm channeling something that isn't coming from my little brain. And uh, so what do I wish for myself is to stay healthy long enough to bring this as far as I can. What's your greatest hope for society today? You know, this, I don't want to seem so egocentric, but if everybody got the self with a capital S is who they really are, and that it's so accessible that you can access it so quickly and that you could lead your life from it. It's not just a, like a lot of people meditate to get into that state you described, but they rely on the meditation to do that. Mm-hmm. They don't see that state you can just access in your daily life and lead your life from. If people did that and they could heal a lot of these, especially the legacy, we haven't gotten into legacy burdens, but the the burdens that came from relatives that were traumatized even centuries ago and just trickle on down drive so many of the conflicts around the world. And they're all healable. They're all, all that can be unloaded. Is that like epigenetics? Yeah, it's totally like epigenetics. Uh, but there are other means of, of uh, transmission. If all that could happen, it would be a very different world. You know, that's the vision that keeps me going. You want to be able to heal yourself because when you've, you're a healed person, you can help others around you or you show up as a better person in this world. And there's that saying, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And we're all kind of triggering each other in some way or another. But if you've worked yourself out, then you won't be that person. Yeah, not only would you not be hurting other people, but you would actually be leading your life from this place of compassion and calm and sense of connection and those C words. And mm. you would have the clarity to see injustice, for example, because so many of us just deny injustice around us. And then you would have the courage to act, to change it. And so you would become more of an activist as well. People, as they heal, as they unburden this way and they access more self, they start to act in their surroundings to to heal injustice, but also become more politically active as well. I wonder, do you have a favorite prayer or saying or mantra? All parts are welcome <laughs> and no bad parts. I'd love to know what's been your most mystical experience. I had an experience on ketamine where I left. I had no contact with my body. And I entered that non-dual state, which was very blissful. Ever since then, I've become much clearer about how this life is just one of many different realities and that dying is a transition. So I've, I've lost a lot of fear of dying because I know that there's this much bigger world out there. And subsequent ketamine journeys have confirmed that. I interviewed Rick Doblin and he talked a lot about MDMA as a drug that they used for clinical trials. And I think they've passed that, they just recently maybe passed that in Australia. 
the only time I've ever heard about ketamine is when I interviewed the cave diver who rescued the kids, the Australian guy in uh, Thailand, and he spoke a lot about using that. He used that for the kids when they had to go under the water. They gave them all ketamine. Their heart was beating, but they were not conscious. But it's interesting the way that you talk about it and, you know, the experiences that you've had from it. Yeah, um, I have also uh, tried MDMA and uh, it's a very different experience. I actually like ketamine better. Mm. With MDMA, your heart opens enormously and you just feel this love for anybody that's around. And in that state, you relate a much more open way than you normally do. And I think that can be very useful in healing. And you can also, in that state, find these exiled parts and bring them in as well. And Michael Mithoffer, who's Rick's main uh, researcher, is an IFS therapist. And, and they found that without any kind of coaching from the facilitator, that when they would do the medicine, 80% of the people with the high dose city way MDMA would spontaneously start working with their parts. The parts would show up and they'd start to know how to, how to work with them. He's got some great videos of that, which was very validating to me because it just confirmed that when we get away from these mm. parts that dominate our lives, we know how to do this without me even saying how to do it. It's different in this sense that you don't leave your body and ketamine you do it's it's you know it's an anesthetic at a high dose and ketamine you journey and then when you come back then you're accessed a whole lot of self and you are in the similar state to what you're in with the mdma and then you can do a lot of deep work with your parts but it's also again unlike mdma a way to access that much higher spiritual place that you go to when you meditate. Mm. It's interesting as well because it sounds like from your, I mean, I've never taken psychedelics, but it sounds like from your experience that it has helped you long-term as well. So it's not like you're just on the drug and you have the experience and then you go back to normal. That's what I see as the main benefit is this real shift in perspective about who you are, about what the universe is, about how dangerous life is, all of that, when you get out and you really feel all this other, then when you come back, first one, in one of my journeys, when I came back, I thought, oh no, I have to come back to this time thing, you know, this yeah, time yeah. thing, so oppressive. And I have to be in this body and I feel so separate from everybody because I'm in this in this body and it really made you feel how free you are when you're not mm. in your body and you you feel so much more connected to everybody and everything. And it's so funny you say that. My girlfriend and I always say when we go into these meditation retreats where you're doing a lot of deep meditation, you are able to kind of go into that realm and then when we come back, it's like, oh, <laughs> we know we have to, with our eyes open, be the same as we were with our eyes closed, but you are able to access areas that are just so, so blissful and harmonious that you're like, can't we can always stay in that? Which you can, but, you know, sometimes it's a bit harder with your eyes open. Yeah, and there's a danger of that too because mm. 
such a thing as the spiritual bypass. I'm doing a workshop with that topic of uh, the problem of spiritual bypass because it can be like an addiction, you mm. know, just to get away from your exiles. Absolutely. So for me, it's good to get there and to feel it and then to come back to these parts with more love for them mm. and to help them heal. And, and in doing that, you're going to experience a lot of pain, which people don't like to do usually because you're going to have to witness what happened to you when you were young and so on. But the alternative of just using this as another bypass escape is, is a problem. Mm. It is interesting, though, when you do access those overwhelmingly beautiful feelings or emotions. And then I notice that when I come back, like after a deep meditation, if I see something really beautiful or if I'm listening to something and it triggers a lot of love or, or even if it's a sorrow, like I, I notice now that without even realizing I'm doing it, I put my hand on my heart and just kind of sink into it and just like feel that beauty. It's there. I can access this far stronger than I've ever had before in my life. Yeah. And again, that's because my point of view, you've become more self-led. Yeah. By having those experiences, you're bringing some of that back and your, your parts have seen how they don't need to protect you as much because you have this access now to these C words mm. and you can live your life much more from that place. You do become much more sensitive to what your managers had kept you from you actually seeing or feeling. Mm, that's really beautiful. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness? Again, I don't want to seem immodest, but I do feel like I'm living a life of greatness. And, you know, there are thousands and thousands of people that are whose lives have been improved because of this. And I carry that in my heart and that's part of what keeps me going. It's a really good feeling to have, even with all the stuff I was saying earlier about the problems with being now somewhat famous. I feel very blessed to be able to live this life. Richard Schwartz, thank you so much for all the work that you have done and you have changed the life of so many people and that is a true blessing. So thank you for the beautiful conversation today. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.